Well, good morning. Good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. If you are new or visiting, I just want to say welcome. Good to have you. If there are any ways that we can serve you or help you get connected to the community here, we would we'd love to be able to do that. And so just encourage you to find me or, or Aaron or any one of the small group leaders that's here. Uh, we'd love to be able to help you and connect with you and help you get plugged into the community here at River City. So uh, this morning we are working our way through the Gospel of Matthew uh, here at River City. And uh, one of the reasons why we just begin to study God's Word and we kind of just kind of pick a book and kind of chug right through it is because we really believe that the Bible is God's Word. And we want our understanding of who He is. And we want, if, if we want to actually know Him and live in light of who He is, then we've got to know His Word. And the best way to understand who God is and, and live in light of, of what He has to say is, is for us to read His Word and to study. And so we want God's Word to be the thing that informs and transforms our time together. And so we just want that to be at the center of, of what we're doing. So um, again, we're working through the book of Matthew uh, this we're through the book of Matthew this, uh, this this year here, and this morning we are in Matthew chapter ten. And so, um, just a bit of context before we dive into our passage this morning. The the main theme of the whole book of Matthew is about the the kingdom of God and and Jesus as the king of that kingdom. And so, throughout the the last few chapters, the the emphasis has been on the authority of Jesus. It's been really trying to hammer home what it means for Jesus' authority to be manifest and present in the world and in our lives. And, and so throughout the Sermon on the Mount, we saw the authoritative word of Jesus as he taught about what his kingdom is like. Over and over, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say to you. See, Jesus isn't just a messenger for another king. He's not a representative. Jesus is the king himself who has come. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we saw that Jesus is not just a king who teaches with authority. We saw that he's a king who acts with authority. We saw Jesus demonstrating his authority over sickness and nature and even death and sin itself. And so what we saw over and over and over again throughout those chapters is that we saw the goodness of the rule and the reign of Jesus and his kingdom when it comes to bear in the lives of people and in the lives of the world. And see, whenever his, wherever his kingly rule and authority are brought to bear, there is life and there is blessing and there is freedom and there is goodness. And then as we wrapped up chapter 9 and began chapter 10 last week, what we saw is that Jesus is not just the one who does it himself, it's that he empowers and commissions his disciples to be sent as his kingdom ambassadors, ambassadors of his good authority. And so he sends the disciples to declare the good news about his coming and to demonstrate the goodness of his authority being brought to bear in people's lives just as he did. We talked about last week how that's the calling of everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus. You see, in Jesus' kingdom, every citizen is an ambassador for the king. It's the fundamental aspect of what it means to be a disciple because at its, at its heart, discipleship, becoming a disciple is, is about increasingly looking like and becoming like the one who you are following. And so Jesus is God on mission to us. And so following him, imitating him, becoming more like him looks like joining him on mission as he pursues others just as he pursued us. Looks like bringing the, the message about King Jesus and the experience of his good kingly rule and reign into people's lives. Whether that's our family, or our friends, or our neighbors, or our coworkers, and, and in turn the nations, so that all people might become citizens of Jesus' kingdom. But the truth is, is, as Jesus talks about in, at the end of chapter 9, he says, Although the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. 
And this is especially true in the American church. You see, the heartbreaking reality, especially here in our country, is that the amount of people who claim to have no religious affiliation, let alone, any, let alone Christian religious affiliation, is the fastest growing group uh, segment in those, in those kind of calculations. And what the research shows is that while that is true, over 90% of active church members will never share their faith. Over 90% of people who call themselves followers of Jesus and are actively a part of a church will never share their faith. Only 21% of those people will ever invite anyone to church ever. And only 2% of people will invite somebody who doesn't already go to church. Our seminary professor, he's uh, studied evangelism and missions. He, he writes this. He says the active evangelistic labor force of the American church is simply too small to have any meaningful impact on the culture. While there are many reasons for this, the honest truth that we talked about last week is that we just, we don't have Jesus' heart for the people that he sent us to. We just don't care. You see, we might know the king's message and enjoy the kingdom's benefits, but we do not have the king's heart. We saw last week in 935, Jesus looks on the crowds, and what he does is he looks at them with compassion, it says, because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd who were helpless and harassed. You see, they were people who were helpless to save themselves from the just judgment of their own sin because they had no shepherd to show them the way to freedom and forgiveness. You see, and we said last week, the only way we get the king's heart, the only way that we see people with the compassion that Jesus has seen them is when we see how Jesus saw us and looked on us with compassion. When, when the good news about his kingdom and his coming is ongoingly good news to our heart. When the gospel is the thing that informs and infects and transforms our heart in every way. You see, we said last week, verse 8, see, Jesus tells them, freely as you have received. So freely give. You see, ambassadors are representatives that were first recipients. See, ambassadors for Jesus are people who are representatives of him that were first recipients of his good news. You see, and what happens is when the, when the good news about who Jesus is and all that he has done and who you now are in him, when that captivates your heart, you can't help but talk about it with others. You see, we, we default, look, we talk about the things that we love. No one has to force us to do that. That's just how it happens. And the honest truth for us is that one, for us, much of the reason why we don't talk about Jesus and we don't talk about the gospel is because we just don't love it. <laughs> now, I review all of that because what we're going to study this morning, it doesn't really matter unless you understand and embrace the things that we talked about last week. So unless we understand and embrace the calling of every follower of Jesus, to be, every disciple is to be a kingdom ambassador of his, and unless the king's heart for your neighbors and, and the nations, unless his heart is increasingly becoming your heart for those kinds of people, then what we're going to study this morning, it's not going to matter. Because what we're going to see Jesus doing it throughout the rest of chapter 10 is he's teaching the disciples about the reality of life on mission as his kingdom ambassadors. He's teaching them throughout the rest of chapter about what it looks like to actually live on mission with him. What I want to see this morning is that unless we, unless we understand and embrace the, the reality of life on mission as Jesus' kingdom ambassadors, we're never going to join him on mission in the first place, or we'll just give up just as quickly as we began. You see, as followers of Jesus, we need to not just embrace the goal of Jesus' mission, but to embrace the path as well. 
See, now, before we dive into our passage this morning, I just want to say this. The focus of, our, of Jesus' words this morning throughout the end of chapter 10, they are primarily directed at those of us who are, have already submitted to Jesus as king. Who's, who, for us, Jesus is the one who we worship and serve and have given our lives to and surrendered himself to. But I just want to be clear that the message of God's word this morning is for all of us, no matter where you're at in your understanding or your exploration of your relationship with Jesus. You see, because the truth is, is that if you are investing in what it means to follow Jesus, I just want you to know how welcome you are here, how grateful we are to get to, to serve you and to, and, to, and to help you continue to grow in your understanding of who Jesus is and what it looks like to follow him. But, but it's important that you understand and that you know what you're signing up for, what it means to actually surrender to Jesus as king. Because, you see, Jesus doesn't play bait and switch with the first disciples. He doesn't call them to this life of, of, of blessing and of joy without also telling them about the costs as well. And see, Jesus is clear about the joy of life as citizen of, of his kingdom, but he is also clear about the gravity of what he is calling them to as his ambassadors. You see, following Jesus is not all puppies and unicorns, although I wish it was. Life does not instantly get easy. All of our troubles do not go away. But I will say this, life on mission with Jesus as his kingdom ambassadors is the only place that you will ever find true meaning and life and purpose. It is not an invitation to an easy life or to one that is a void of troubles, but it is an invitation to true life. And it's the only place it can be found. And so with that in mind, I just want to pray as we begin our study and dive into God's word together, just trusting that God's going to be at work in our hearts and in our lives as we study. So let me, uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll begin our study this morning. Jesus, we just come to you, and we are so grateful for who you are and for all that you have done for us. And, and most of all, God, this morning we're thankful for your word, that you would, that you would give it to us so that we might know you and that we might love you and that we might follow you. And God, we also just ask that you would be gracious to us this morning, that you'd be gracious to continue to show us what it looks like to follow you, that you'd be gracious to give us eyes to see where you are calling us and, and what it is that you're inviting us to join you in as your kingdom ambassadors. And, and so, God, we just say we need you. We need you to give us eyes to see what it is that you're teaching us. We need you to give us hearts that can respond to it. Jesus, we need you. And so we ask that you would graciously meet us in our need for you as we study your word this morning. We pray that you would, we, pray that we just ask that you would graciously like continue to work in our hearts and in our church. And, and so God, as we study, God, I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit so that as I teach, God, what is true and right and good would, be, would become uh, what is at the heart of what we talk about. God, we just, we just come dependent on you this morning, needing you to be at work in our hearts and lives and needing you to be the one that reshapes and reforms who we are. And so we just say we need you, Jesus. So we love you. Thanks that you've met us here. We look forward to how you'll work in our hearts. Amen. Amen. So we are in Matthew chapter 10 this morning. We're beginning in verse 9, trekking all the way to the end of the chapter in verse 42. Jesus here talking, speaks in verse 9. So, again, he's telling the disciples, he's talking about them. He sent them on mission with him, sent him to go proclaim and to demonstrate the good news about who he is and to demonstrate what his kingdom is like. And he continues on in verse 9, he says this, And so don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in, uh, in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. 
Whatever town or village you enter, search there for, someone wor- for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. And as you enter the home, give it your greeting. And if the home is deserving, then let your peace rest on it. And if not, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off of your feet. For truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard, uh, be on your guard, for you'll be handed over to local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't not worry about what you will say or, or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father who is speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children rebel against their parents and even put them to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And when you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Is it enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters? For if the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household. And so don't be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will be not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. For what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim on the roofs. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of the Father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. And do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his own household. For anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and anyone who loves their son or their daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you, welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me, welcomes the one who sent me. And whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive that prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives up a cup of cold water to one of those little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. The word of the Lord. See, as we study our passage this morning, what we're seeing is Jesus laying out for these first disciples and for us the the reality of life on mission as his ambassadors. We saw last week him calling them to the mission of being his ambassadors. And this week we see him laying out the reality of what that life looks like. Unless we understand and embrace that reality of what it actually means to be on mission with Jesus, then we're going to give up on mission just as quickly as we started. It's like me when I tried to start running a couple of years ago. I got like two blocks down the street and I was like, nope, I'm out. There's way, there's like this, this is not happening. I'm like bending over, like trying to catch my breath, like... It's like been six miles already, right? 
I can still see up my apartment, like, right behind me, you know, I'm like, now, this is, I'm, this is not going to work, right? You see, while some of the specifics about what life on mission with Jesus will look like here in Dubuque are different than what it looked like for these first disciples, the principles are the same. You see, we should, there's two things, that, two kind of areas that Jesus is really helping the disciples to see this morning. One, he's, he's trying to help them see what they can expect as they live on mission with him. But he's also trying to show them what it will require in order to stay on mission with him, in order to be fruitful in their joining him on mission. And so first this morning, I want to, there is, just by the way, there is so much in these verses. Like, we, we don't have time to get to every last nook and cranny of what's going on here. But my heart this morning is to help, see, help us see the big picture of what Jesus is trying to lay out for us. So the first thing I want us to take a look at, what Jesus lays out for these disciples, what they can expect as we live on mission with Jesus what, what can we expect to encounter as we live on mission with Jesus? Verses 24 and 25 read this way. The student is not above the teacher, nor a, nor a servant above his master. For it, is it not enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters? If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more than members of the household? You see, what Jesus is doing right here is he's, he's saying, if you want to know what you can expect as you live on mission with me, look at my own life. See, if you're going to live as my disciples, sent on mission as I was, you can expect to experience the same things that I did. And there's a huge list of what happens in our, see, we see in our passage. And if we're honest, it's not really an exciting list. You look at that and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if I want to sign up for that. Right, because what's on the list when you look and throughout the past, we see rejection and hatred and persecution and conflict, even with those who are closest to us, and, and even death sometimes. You see, verse 14 tells, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, then leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. What Jesus is saying is, some people aren't going to receive what you have to say. You will be rejected. Verse 22, he goes on, he said, you will be hated by everyone because of me. And I just want to, as a side note, that verse has been used out of context a whole lot of times for people who act like total jerks as they talk about Jesus as an excuse for why people are frustrated with them or treat them poorly. The passage says, you'll be hated because of me, not because you're a jerk. Those are different things, right? Just as a heads up. The message about who Jesus is, that can be hard to receive. But sometimes the messengers really are the problem, not the message itself. You see, you will be hated, he says, because of me. It'll be verse 23, when you, when you are persecuted in one place. Not if you are, when you are. Verse 19, when they arrest you. Verse 17, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. You will be opposed. You will be opposed in lots of different ways. And, and he says you will experience conflict. Conflict on the mission of Jesus is inevitable. And oftentimes that conflict happens in those relationships with the people who we are closest to. Verse 34 through 36, Jesus says this, Don't suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've come instead to bring a sword, for I have, not come, uh, for I have come to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be in the members of his own household. You see, the message about King Jesus, it can be divisive. And sometimes the problem, like we said, is the messenger, right? you just kind of a jerk as you talk about it. But what Jesus is saying is here is that sometimes the message itself is the thing that divides. You see, because the message about King Jesus is good news. 
It's good news that a Savior has come, the one who we needed to renew and restore us. But the good news isn't good unless there's bad news. You see, and the bad news can be quite divisive. You see, the bad news about the gospel is the proclamation that simultaneously it's a condemnation of our rebellious hearts. And it is a proclamation of our absolute insufficiency to save ourselves. And the truth is, we don't like to hear that. Nobody likes to hear that you are a failed rebel without any hope to save yourself. That's not an encouraging message. But it is true. Sometimes it is hard, and sometimes it does bring conflict. You see, if you're going to join Jesus on mission, you are not invited into a life without conflict. You're not invited to a life in which every relationship is just totally at peace. That's not what Jesus' life looked like either. And all of this wraps up into what he says a number of times. Verse 21 is an example. Sometimes it leads to death. You see, for some followers of Jesus, this is a literal thing. For all of the men that Jesus was speaking to, being on mission with him would lead to their death. And all over the world, this is a a very real possibility. Just read the Voice of the Martyrs once sometime. I remember in high school, I read a book along those lines, and my heart just broke as I read about the realities of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in places that are actually hostile towards him. Not just, not just culturally hostile, but physically hostile towards what it means to follow Jesus. You see, death is a real possibility for those who would call themselves followers of Jesus as they live on mission with him throughout the world. That's a real thing. But let's be honest, for us here in Dubuque, we're not facing physical death as we live as Jesus' kingdom ambassadors. That's not, that's not really uh, an outcome that we have to be worried about. You see, but the death that Jesus calls us to, that he foreshadows, might look like something else for us here. It might look like the death of dreams that you have or the death of a career that you have aspired to. It might look like the death of aspirations that you have sought to or relationships that you have been pursuing. You see, the call to follow Jesus is a call for all of us to die. It's a difficult when Jesus lays out what the expectations about what it means, what it looks like to live on mission with him, like there aren't people chanting. Like it's, it's not the, yes, let's do it. This is going to be great. You can expect life to be difficult and relationships to be hard. And if that wasn't enough to inspire us, Jesus also talks about the, the, what it will take, what it will require for us to stay on mission with him. And these things are difficult as well. And they can be characterized in three things, I think. The first is this. It's a confident dependence on God's provision and direction and his spirit, not on yourself. Verse 9 reads this way. Don't get any gold or silver or copper to take with you on your belts. No bag for your extra journey. No extra shirt or, or extra sandals or staff. For the worker is worth his keep. And whatever town or village you enter, search there for some unworthy person and stay in the house until you leave. Jesus is telling the disciples... He's like, you need to depend on God to provide your needs as you, see, as you sent with him on mission. He does that often through the hospitality of those that you are being sent to. And the idea here is not that we should, ever, that we should never plan, that we should never strategize, that we, should, that we should never be prepared as we join Jesus on mission. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Rather, what he's saying is that we should have an attitude of dependence on God that gets worked out in our actions. See, some of us, 
When we, when we are looking to join Jesus on mission, we never take any risk until we have every possible detail and we know the result of what it will be. And that's not what Jesus is calling these men to. He's saying, following me, sometimes you can over-prepare and that causes you to under-rely. Since we join Jesus on mission, we've got to have an attitude of dependence on him that gets worked out in our actions. Moreover, we are to encouraged to depend on God for his provisions, but also for his direction. Verse 12 reads this way, As you enter a home, give it your greeting. And if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. You see, oftentimes I think what happens when we, when we are trying to be intentional about sharing our faith with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, is that, is that we, we just pick one person. We feel like there's this one person that God has sent us to. And that's the only person we could ever possibly think that Jesus might be calling us to reach. And the truth is that sometimes the people who are most receptive to the gospel are the people who you think are going to be least receptive to it. I shared a story last week in college about my friend Cody, who I felt like God was just deliberately calling me to reach out to. Cody had expressly articulated to me on a number of occasions that he thought the idea of religion was stupid and that there is no way there could possibly be a God. And I remember as I shared last week getting a chance to talk with Cody about what was going on in my own heart and how God had been working in my story and causing me to have a foundation in him. As I shared that with him, I remember my friend Cody responding to me. Yeah, I was walking back from class the other day and thought, there, I bet you there is a God, and I wish I knew somebody who could f- help me figure out who he is. You see, sometimes the people who we think are least likely to receive the message about the gospel are those who are most likely and most ready. And sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes those who we think are right on the edge have hearts that are hard and are not ready to respond. And so that doesn't mean that we just give up on friends um, and forget about them. If if we get one rejection or, or if our friends refuse or if they're not ready the first time that we talk to them. But it does mean that there's probably other people that God is sending us to. And as we patiently and intentionally invest ourselves in people's lives, waiting for the times and and spots in their lives where God is at work in them, are probably other people that God is also sending us to. So we need to have hearts that are open to Jesus leading in his direction, not just the people who we think are the ones that God is sending us to. We need to be led by his spirit in the directions that he is going in his timing. And so we're called to depend on God's provision and his direction, but most importantly, we're called to to depend on God's spirit. Verse 19 says this way, but when they arrest you, don't worry about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be speaking, uh, for you will not be, it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of the father who is speaking through you. And those words can be at the same time, both incredibly encouraging and incredibly scary. Because the invitation is for us to speak truthfully about who Jesus is and to proclaim who he is, knowing that sometimes we're not going to know what we're supposed to say, but we're still invited to speak. See, the, the scary part is that, is that you're, we're called to speak in the truth about who Jesus is, even though we're not sure exactly what to say. But the encouraging part is that Jesus says, I know that you're not going to know what to say. That's why you need the Spirit of God, because he's the one who speaks rightly about who Jesus is. You see, the role of the Spirit, especially as we see throughout the New Testament, is that he's like a floodlight who shines light on Jesus. The Spirit of God loves to shine light on Jesus so that we might see him and enjoy him and treasure him and know him. And the Spirit is incredibly good at that. 
I don't know if you've ever had those experiences when you're in a conversation with a friend and you find yourself and you're just like, I have no idea what I'm supposed to say in this conversation. And by the end of the conversation, you leave and you're like, that was incredible. What did I say? I've had a number of those kinds of situations with friends and and neighbors where I've began conversations with them or got into a conversation with them about Jesus, not not knowing where it was going or how, what I was going to say or or what I was going to talk about. And the Spirit of God just leading graciously. And I look back on those moments and I'm like, I don't, how how did I say any of that? I didn't even, I don't even know that stuff. Where did that come from? That's the Spirit of God empowering his people to proclaim the message about who he is. See, dependence on God for all of these things is hard. It's hard to depend on him for provision. and It's hard to depend on him for provision when we want to provide for ourselves. It's hard to depend on him for direction when we want to know the direction that we're going without any kind of doubt. It's hard to depend on his spirit when we want to rely on ourselves. And the good news is for us is that it is good news for God to be in control. You see, when we are in control, it doesn't usually end well. But when God is in control, he is able to bring about good in all of the places that we cannot. And so the invitation is that we might trust him. That we give up control of our understanding and our situations and our provision and allow him to be the one who takes control and to trust him with that. And so life on mission with Jesus requires a confident dependence on God, but we'll never have that unless we have the second thing that life on mission with Jesus requires. And this is probably the most important of all. It's a fear of God instead of man. Verse 28 reads this way. It says, don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, we, we have trouble understanding that phrase when it, when it talks about the fear of the Lord and what it means to be afraid. Because for us, when we think about fear, we just think about being scared of something. But part of the problem is that there isn't really a good English translation for that word fear in the Bible. There's not really a, 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 it's not really a good translation for that word. You see, what fear in the Bible is really getting at is the idea of being overwhelmed or being controlled by something. It's getting at the idea of worship. My seminary professor said it this week as I, as I was watching a lecture this week. He said, we need to understand that fear is worship. Fear is worship. And we don't think like that. You see, the Bible defines fear into two main categories, fear of God and fear of anything else. One to describe positively and the other to describe negatively. If you were with us this past summer, we read in Proverbs. And Proverbs 28, 14 says this, Blessed is the one who always trembles before the Lord, who has a fear of the Lord. And Proverbs 29, 25 says it this way, Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You see, psychologists, they tell us that if you understand your greatest fears, then you'll understand the thing that your heart treasures the most. If, if you see your greatest fear, then you'll also be able to see the thing that you love the most. You'll be able to see your greatest love. And at first, that sounds a little bit odd, but in the end, it really makes sense. You see, whatever we love the most, whatever we desire the most, whatever we have the most awe and reverence for, whatever the thing is that we are most afraid of losing, the thing that we want most desperately to have or get or keep, that is by definition the thing that we functionally worship. It's the thing that has an overwhelming, controlling influence in our life. And the Bible says there's only one thing that is meant to have an overwhelming, controlling influence in your life, 
and it's Jesus. And so a fear of him, letting him be the one who is the overwhelming, controlling influence of your life, that's the only way in which everything else in life works itself out. You see, and it leads to life and blessing and joy because God is not just all-powerful, he is good. You see, God can destroy the body and the soul, but don't forget verse 29 and 30. Matthew writes, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You see, the reason we should fear God, the reason why fearing God is actually good for us, is not just because God has authority, all authority. It's because he's good. He knows and he values us. And so being, un, being overwhelmingly influenced and controlled by him is the best possible place for us to be because he is the one who truly knows and loves us. A fear of the Lord is, is about putting God in his rightful place in our lives as the one who has all authority and all power, the one who we submit our lives to and the one who we trust in and wholly rely on. You see, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and see him as the, the one who is worthy of our fearful worship, We'll be able to depend on him and not on ourselves, but we'll also be able to have the third thing that life on mission with Jesus requires that we see in our passage, and it's this. It's an eternal perspective. You see, the mission isn't easy, and it will likely be filled with hardship and trial, with the loss of respect or acceptance or approval of people, with being misunderstood and even mistreated, and that will all be impossible for us to bear as Jesus' kingdom ambassadors unless we have our eyes set on the finish line and not in the moment. You see, in the finish line, in the end, Jesus says this way in verse 26, Don't be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will, be, that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. You see, the truth that we have been rejected or misunderstood or mistreated for proclaiming will be made known as the truth. Jesus says, in the end, the truth will come out, and you will be vindicated. Verse 16, it reads this way, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. You see, what happens is that trusting that in the end, Jesus is the one who will vindicate us, enables us to live as sheep among wolves, not needing to defend or vindicate ourselves in the meantime, but having our eyes and our hearts set on the end, in which Jesus, the king of all, will proclaim what is true and right and good. And his people who have proclaimed his message will be seen as true. So we'll be vindicated in the end. But secondly, it says that the respect or the acceptance or the approval that we've lost from people will be aboundingly superseded by Jesus himself, who in verse 32 says this, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Who cares what people say when the king of the universe says something good about you? Who cares what people have to say if the king of the universe says, I'm the one who will acknowledge you? And what I say about you is the thing that is of utmost value and utmost worth. My opinion matters. I'm the one who counts. You see, that's freeing because the invitation is for us to live in light of Jesus' approval of us. Not of other people's of other people's approval of us. And lastly, the passage says we need to have our eyes set on the end, right? Because not only will we be blessed, 
but those who receive the message we have proclaimed will receive an eternal blessing as well. Verse 40 reads this way. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me, and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to the little ones who are my disciples, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. You see what Jesus, what's going on here in this passage, Jesus is saying is those who receive the message that you have proclaimed, those who you have proclaimed to, who receive you as a prophet of, of Jesus, who receive the righteousness of Jesus as proclaimed by the righteous ones of Jesus, whoever receives the message of the gospel, they will also receive the reward. You see our family and our friends and our coworkers the neighbors that we have and the nations that we have been sent to. I see the, the end that Jesus has proclaimed is that in the end, all those who receive the message of the gospel will join us around the throne of the king, worshiping him and enjoying him for all eternity. You see, that's the blessing that's at the end. It's the people that we love and the people that God has sent us to. That they'll be, instead of Instead of agonizing in opposition with Jesus, they will get to enjoy and treasure him for all ages. That's the thing that's at the end. That's the eyes that, are, that's the eyes that our hearts, the eyes of our hearts need to be set on that truth. That our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, the people that we love, that they might actually be, have life in Jesus, not just now, but for all eternity. And so the truth about following Jesus is that the mission is hard. And there is life and there is blessing at the end, but the reality is that it's hard in the meantime. And for most of us, as we read this, even as myself, it's not an appealing invitation. It's a call to lose our lives, as verse 39 says. You see, it's one thing to understand the reality of this mission. But as I said, we don't just need to understand the reality of it, we need to embrace it. So the question is, how, 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 do we, how, do, how do God's people just embrace that? It's not just how do we endure that. What, motivates, what would motivate someone to embrace that kind of a life on mission with Jesus? I remember a few years ago, there was a, a video that went viral where there was these people, they were doing an interview and they recorded, they were recording this job interview. It was kind of like a Skype job interview. And the, the, the title of the position was Director of Operations. And, and so the guy, people would get on, get on the Skype call with this guy who was doing these interviews, and he'd, he'd talk about the expectations of the job, and he'd say, uh, basically the hours are, you know, 18 to 24 hours a day. Uh, there's no breaks. Uh, there's no vacations. You're constantly on your feet. You need to have expert-level interpersonal and negotiating skills, and you need to always have a good attitude. Oh, yeah, and the pay is nothing. And people's faces, he's going, they're just like, this, is this a real conversation? Like, how, what is going on? This sounds crazy. Like, one of the people's like, is that even legal? Is it even legal for you to have those kind of job requirements? Who would do that? All the people are like, who would, who would take this job? And then, then the interviewer says, moms. Moms have that job. And every, it's like this feel-good moment, right? And everyone's like, oh, I love my mom so much. Like, that is totally true. She has no breaks, and she's done all this stuff for me, right? And there's just this moment where people, they're just like, man, I love my mom. 
You see, the life of Jesus' kingdom's ambassadors are a lot like that. You see, the job that we have been invited into seems crazy at some times. And so the thing that motivates us to embrace that kind of life, like the people who responded in love and gratitude for their moms who did all of that for them, is that we respond in love and gratitude to a God who has done all of it for us. You see, all that we can expect as we live on mission with Jesus, all that is required as we live on mission with him, Jesus has already done all of it for us. You see, King Jesus gave up the independent use of his divine authority, and instead he depended completely on the Father's provision and direction and spirit. Do you sense the weight of that? The creator of the universe gave up his authority. The one who made all things. He got hungry and he felt tired and he experienced pain. You see, Jesus gave up his authority so that he might surrender and submit to the Father's leading and direction and spirit. And Jesus lived with an eternal perspective. Hebrews tells us that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And Jesus experienced rejection and opposition and hatred and conflict and betrayal, even from those who were most close to him. His family called him out in front of public and tried to kind of have him brought in. His disciples rejected him. Often Peter, his his most ardent follower, denied him three times the night that he was arrested. See, Jesus experienced rejection and opposition and hatred and conflict and betrayal. In the face of all that, even in the face of torture on the cross, Jesus chose to worship the Father instead of fear man. And God's word says that he did that for you. Philippians 2 says that Jesus considered us as more valuable than himself. You need to let that sink in. See, the creator of the universe said that we rebellious enemies of his rule and authority were more valuable than him. I have a hard time putting my family's needs in front of my own, let alone people who have hated and rejected me. You see, we will never join Jesus on mission and we will never embrace the call that he has given us unless we see that he has pursued us in the way that he is calling us to pursue others. And he did that because without him coming, you and I would would not have life in him. Instead, we would be stuck and condemned in our sinful rebellion. You see, what what we do every week as we celebrate communion is that we were remembering all that Jesus did as he came for us. See, we were lost and helpless, stuck in sin, unable to save ourselves. But Jesus came as the good shepherd who pursued us and followed us. You see, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and his blood, which were broken and which were shed for us as he lived the life that you and I were supposed to live. And as he died the death that you and I should have died, paying the penalty that you and I owed so that we might be forgiven and that we might have, be able to have a right relationship with God again. And so what we're doing every week when we take communion is that we are remembering and we are celebrating that. And, the, and what that should do for us is that should fill us with a love and a gratitude for Jesus as we remember all that he has done and, and who we now are in him. And that wells its way up into worship that overflows in our hearts and our lives that we might talk about the one who has come for us. That's why we remember 
communion every week because we forget all the time. We need to be reminded that the king of the universe would come to seek and to save those who have rejected and opposed him so that we might live as his kingdom ambassadors sent into the world who have experienced the message of the king and experienced the good news about his gracious love towards us and who long for our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, for the nations to know him. So if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, then during our time of worship after the sermon here, go back and take communion. And do it as a celebration. As you do, ask God to remind you about all that he has done for you. Ask him to remind you about who you are and about who he has made you to be. Ask him to remind you about who you were, but when he came for you. You don't need to be a member here. You just need to belong to Jesus. As we sing and as we worship, as we celebrate communion this morning, I just encourage you, talk with God. What is keeping you from surrendering him as the, to him as the king of your life? It is a call to lose your life, but it is a call to, in doing so, find the life that you are longing for and can find nowhere else. For those of us who do follow Jesus, who have surrendered to him as king and as savior, I just encourage you, talk with God. Be honest with him. What part of the call that he's laid out for us this morning about the reality of life on mission with him, which part of that is hardest for you to embrace? Is it a, just being willing to face conflict and awkwardness and misunderstanding and mistreatment? Is it, is it giving up control to God, asking, trusting him for provision and leading and trusting him to be the one that speaks even when you don't know what to say? Is it, is it trusting or caring more about what God thinks than what people think? Be honest with God. Talk with him about it. As I studied and as I prepped this week, uh, God just really was gracious in my own heart as he convicted me about a relationship I have with a friend of mine. And I just felt like just this week, God was just really clearly calling me to ask a friend of mine a question to get him to think about what the gospel means and, and what his life looks like. And I remember being in the, the situation that I knew God was sending me into and not saying anything because I was just afraid. I wasn't afraid of what my friend would think of me. I was afraid of losing my friend. I was afraid of what would happen. You see, and God graciously spoke into my heart this week. I'm not asking you for the fruit. I'm asking you for the obedience. You see, for all of us, we need to choose to surrender to Jesus as king and to embrace the life that he has called us on as his kingdom representatives. You see, eternity is at stake. Whatever it is, whatever is holding you back, whatever is keeping you stuck from joining Jesus on mission as his kingdom ambassadors, I pray that you would ask, just be honest with God about it. Just admit to him what you are frustrated by or what you are afraid of. Begin by talking honestly with him about it, but more than that, ask him. Ask him to show you how Jesus has already done all that he is asking you to do for him. Ask God to show you how Jesus has done that for you. That might fill you and be motivated by gratitude for him and empowered by the spirit of God. You see, the invitation for us as we respond to Jesus' words to be sent as his kingdom ambassadors is that we would give ourselves back to the one who has given himself for us. For the salvation of those the king is pursuing through us, 
but more than anything, for the glory of the King who came to seek and save those who are lost. To that end, let us pray and let us live. Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, and we just say we have, we have so often, we have missed the mission that you have called us to. Whether that's out of fear or out of ignorance or, or whatever reason, God, we say that we haven't rightly joined you on mission as you have sent us to. So God, we, we ask this morning, God, I ask this morning that you would call us into mission with you, that you would make clear that invitation and that identity that you have given us as your kingdom ambassadors. God, and I pray that this church would be characterized by a people who love talking about you because we love talking about the good news about the gospel in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so God, I pray that you would cause the good news about who you are to, to be good news to us. And I pray that we as your people who have surrendered to you as king, God, that you would help us to experience the goodness of your kingly rule and authority in our lives in such a way that would cause us in love to talk about you. And so Jesus, we just say we need you. God, we need you to cause the gospel to be good news in us so that it might be good news through us. God, the invitation that you've given us to follow you is hard. It's hard to not just understand, it's hard to embrace. And Jesus, we pray that for the joy that is set before us, for the joy of knowing you and living in light of you, Jesus, for the joy of responding to you as the king who has come for us, oh, Jesus, that we might embrace whatever you send us into. Jesus, we need you. Thank you that you have embraced all of that, that you have come on mission for us, that you might be the king. We are not called to just do what you say, but to imitate what you have done. And so God, fill us with a joy that comes from knowing you and with an insatiable longing for our friends and our neighbors, for our neighbors and for the nations, Jesus, to come to know and love and follow you and live in light of your good kingly rule and reign. We need you, Jesus. Thanks that you have come. Amen.